Hello and bienvenido San Antonio. Welcome to the Alamo Hour, discussing the people, places, and passion that make our city. My name is Justin Hill, a local attorney, a proud San Antonioan, and keeper of chickens and bees. On the Alamo Hour, you'll get to hear from the people that make San Antonio great and unique and the best kept secret in Texas. We're glad that you're here. All right, welcome to the Alamo Hour. Today's guest is Patrick Svitek. He is uh, the primary political correspondent for the Texas Tribune. And if you don't know, Texas Tribune has kind of um, become a really a nationwide leader in nonprofit journalism and kind of reworking the way that the business model works. He's their primary political correspondent. He's previously worked at the Houston Chronicle. Uh, in a, he's covered the 2016 campaign trail. He's he's in my estimation kind of one or two of the biggest. Uh, Twitter accounts to follow if you're interested in, especially state of Texas politics. Uh, so for me, it's really cool to have you here because I've been following you for a long time. Uh, you recently moved to San Antonio, so I, I, I took the opportunity to ask you to come on my show. So thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited about this. Uh, you're recent to San Antonio as of Labor Day, I think you said. Yeah, around Labor right. Day weekend. Uh, me and my girlfriend moved down to San Antonio. She got a new job here. We decided to uh, pack up and come down here and uh, we bought a home in Beacon Hill and, and we're loving it so far. Yeah. So you're living like real San Antonio yeah. and you know, <laughs> so many people are like, I live in San Antonio. I live yeah. in far North or here, yeah, but yeah. you know, they are in San Antonio. It's just a different experience. Um, so all my shows, I always kind of get some information on people, sort of the city of San Antonio feel for you. Um, and you're new here. So it'll be kind of interesting to get some yeah. of your takes. Um, this is your first time to live in San Antonio, right? That is correct. Um, previously only had traveled to San Antonio uh, for work, basically. And f I think only, you know, I've made a number of trips, but only even spent the night just once. It's usually kind of an afternoon day trip kind of thing. Sure. And you've spent so much time in other Texas cities. What sort of stands out to you after being here for the last few months as kind of uh, what sets San Antonio apart in your estimation? I think it's it's more laid back in a, in a good way than other uh, you know major Texas cities, especially compared to Austin. Sure, I think the two cities are kind of hard to compare in some ways. But one comparison I, I will certainly make is that it's it's more laid back uh, than Austin, and in a good way. Yeah, um, you know, kind of a, a big city with a, kind of a small city culture. I think in in some ways, again, I mean that in a, in a positive right. way. Absolutely, um, I've loved the people so far. I've loved living uh, in Beacon Hill. My girlfriend and I wanted to live somewhere uh, really central in the city, as, as we were talking about, um, that also had kind of its own identity. It wasn't just kind of blended into downtown or midtown or, you know, the, the yeah. urban, urban core. And so we're getting that with, with Beacon Hill, and we, and we like it a lot. Yeah, I think it's one of the oldest neighborhoods in San Antonio. I'll speak out of turn, but I remember when I was doing some research, I wanted to move uh, by a building over there and move my office over there. So I was doing some research, and I was surprised at sort of how historic that neighborhood is for the city of San, which is a already a historic city. Um, have you found any sort of hidden gems in San Antonio that you've just been shocked by or surprised by? I mean, the first time I went to the Japanese tea garden, have you been there? I have not. No. I mean, <laughs> you'll go and it's, there's a yeah. waterfall coming out of a, a yeah. limestone cliff and huge koi ponds. And it's in the middle of the city, anything like that, that, that you've been able to experience and just kind of been surprised by. So we, we've been to all the, I think at this point, all the, the major neighborhoods um, in terms of, you know, I mean, we like Southtown King William, we obviously, as I pointed out, Beacon Hill, I think, has a lot to offer. Um, we, you know, have made it outside of, uh, you know, the outer loop a little bit. We took our, our new our new Chihuahua dog <laughs> on a, a hike uh, at Government Canyon State Park a couple weekends ago. All right. We enjoyed that a lot. Yeah. Um, was surprised by how close that kind of nature, uh -huh. you know, was to the city. 
Um, you know, I don't know if I'd call that a hidden gem because I think everyone probably knows about this. No, I mean, but state park, but it was very. I horrible. think there's some dinosaur tracks out there. <laughs> yes, maybe exactly. I've yeah, never yeah, seen yeah. those. Yeah, 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 we didn't see them, but we, we read about because them. you yeah, had yeah. a dog. You can only go to a certain part, <laughs> right? Yes, yeah, true. Yeah, yeah, it's just the front country trail. And I got yeah, yeah. lost there with my dog in what had to be like June one time. Yeah, and. I mean, I had to carry him over my shoulders. He puked. I mean, it was kind of hairy getting lost out there when the yeah, heat yeah. was really hitting. But it is. It feels very desolate out there. Uh, I was going to ask you about pets. You've already answered that. Um, any odd hobbies? Odd hobbies? Um, no, I wouldn't. I have a hobby. It's it's not odd. I, I like to run most okay. evenings of the week. And this is also, you know, ties into what I like about San Antonio. We live relatively close to San Pedro Springs Park. Oh, yeah. And, um you know, one, one loop around the park is basically one mile. And so if you're, if you're, you know, like someone like me who likes to run, you know, round distances, you know, and like challenge yourself based on a, you know, one mile loop, uh, it's a good place to be. So I like running down there. Yeah. And the Springs are beautiful. Yeah. We unfortunately didn't get to experience, you know, by the time I started, you know, branching out after we moved in and looking around for places to, you know, go out to parks and stuff like that, it was getting a little, a little cold and kind of past the prime time for the spring. So we're looking forward to that. I don't think anybody's been in the Springs in years. I I think because of COVID, it's Oh, really? Down. Okay. Like, okay. Yeah, literally, yeah. I, they used to have a fence around it, I thought. There's oh, no okay. fence around yeah, yeah, it, yeah. and there's nobody in it. Okay. Uh, but it is beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. And the theater there is actually really Oh, yeah. It's gorgeous. Nice yeah. Too. I haven't been in, but I you know, run by it all the time. It's just go. like, yeah. We need to support, you know, uh, San Antonio doesn't have the Zach, you know. Yeah. And, and Austin has like three, uh, you know, professional theaters. That yeah. is our only professional theater. Yeah. And, and it struggles. <laughs> you know, San Antonio is kind of a city that's growing. So, do go see it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, have you been to Fiesta yet? No. Okay. Are you going to stay in town for Fiesta? Yes. Yeah, right. yeah. Oh, definitely planning on yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. I haven't experienced it yet. Is your girlfriend from here? She is not. She uh, is. Uh, she had lived in Austin for a number, about maybe three or four years. Um, and then before that, she went to school in Virginia, lived in Virginia, but she's originally from Colorado. Well, I'm, I'm jealous you're going to get to experience Fiesta for the first time. Yeah, we're both looking forward to it. I think <laughs> enough people don't realize how much fun it is. It's kind of our Mardi Gras, and it is a yeah. huge party for multiple days. Um, how many how many counties do you think you visited in Texas? I know a lot of political correspondents counties. really get out and about. So I would say so we've got 254 counties in Texas. Um, I'm confident that I have at least driven through um, – you know, at least driven through, this is a bold claim to make. So I want to, I want to make sure that I don't get out in front of my skis here, but uh, I, I, I've definitely driven through well over half the counties in Texas. Okay. Um, and I, I wouldn't be shocked if I tied them all up and I've driven through at least, uh, you know, at least up to two thirds of them. So I didn't know we, if you got stuck following yeah. Beto on his every right. county tour or something. <laughs> yeah. In his 2018 campaign, I got to travel to some remote places and we drove for Christmas from San Antonio to Fort Collins, Colorado, yeah. up through Amarillo. And that was a, a I knocked out like probably 14 yeah. to 15 new counties in Texas for myself doing that. Probably so. more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that added some new names. Did to y'all list. go up through Amarillo? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So San Antonio, there's basically nothing between San Antonio and Amarillo. I guess you kind of go through Big Spring, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe Abilene, and Big Spring. It, you're west of Abilene. Okay. Um, but otherwise, there's not much between uh, San Antonio and Amarillo. So my dad um, was born up around Amarillo. So, okay. Yeah. But we yeah. don't go up there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I grew up in the Wichita Falls area. So yeah. Yeah. You know, I've yeah. seen quite a bit. But of, uh, yeah. No, definitely got some new, some new counties to add to the list from that drive. So I was doing some research. I saw you've you kind of have a lot of TV appearances and you know, you're the guy who comes on and talks about what's going on in Texas. Uh, any particular interviewers that you thought were just really good and, you know, impressed by. 
You know, I always like doing podcast interviews um, or like the longer form interviews, um, you know, whether it's like sometimes the local, uh, you know, the local TV, you know, anchors will have like, you know, they'll have you on for like a five minute hit and then they got their personal podcast and like, like, come over here and talk for half an hour. Uh, Those are always more fun sometimes stuff exactly like we're doing right now. I always enjoy that a little more. Um, So so most of the ones I saw you were like two two minutes and 40 seconds. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) exactly. It's like, yeah, you you come on MSNBC or CNN for a little bit and they just got two questions about, uh, you know you know, tell us how big of a deal this is in Texas right now. How's it playing out on the ground? Uh, you know, so, yeah. <laughs> um, I like the longer form stuff I'd say. Do you like doing the TV stuff or the written more? Um, I, I like, you know, appearing for the trip on TV, uh, gives a good opportunity to talk about. I think it, you know, it's good to show that the Tribune has reporters who, you know, are, are working hard on these stories and that have national impact and national reach. And so I enjoy that. I think it's a great opportunity for the, the trip's profile. Um, but, you know, I'm also doing more video work for the trip. We have this new campaign video series that we just started recently. We did kind of a, a soft launch first episode that was about the governor's race. And we're working on a second episode about the Republican primary for AG. And so I've, mm. I've been trying to do a little more yeah. um, video work for the trip because it does, you know, continue to intrigue me. And I'm sure I butchered it, but uh, for our audience, how would you describe the Texas Tribune? Because it is non-traditional media. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a, we're a nonprofit newsroom. Um, you know, I'd say our, you know, our focus is uh, statewide government and politics. And so if you want to know what's happening at the legislature, um, if you want to know what's happening in campaigns, if you want to know how uh, our politicians and our policies are impacting uh, the entire state, and in some cases, the entire country, yeah. we, we want to be the go-to source for that. Um, not just to explain those things and explain the implications of those things, but to, you know, hold folks accountable uh, and really dig into what's behind some of the decisions that our leaders are making. And Evan Smith was the editor, but he recently retired. He, he recently announced that he'll be stepping down by the end of this calendar year. So he's, he's still with us. Yeah. <laughs> but he had come uh, from Texas monthly, right? I mean, yeah, he has yeah, kind of a big exactly. pedigree. Yeah. And he's, he's obviously, I mean, it goes out saying Evan is a, uh, you know, singular figure, not just in Texas media, but in, in the national media sure. landscape and is, is so central to the success of the did Tribune. Did you see the Washington Post about him today? I did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's Absolutely. really good. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I mean, what the Trib has done over the years in terms of trying to, uh, you know, create a better environment for local news as a statewide organization, I think has been really important, whether it's just like the fact that we let local newspapers republish our content as long as, you know, they give us credit, they put yeah. the byline on it, but re- republish it, you know, um, in its full form. Um, you know, I think that's a really important thing the Trib has done over the years. Also, and I know COVID has kind of tamped this down, but our, our events business has increasingly held mm-hmm. events outside of not just Austin, but outside of like the big, you know, four cities or whatever, the big metro areas. Yeah. And so I think that's really good for, uh, obviously really good for informing the public, uh, you know, but also just good for our brand to be in places like the Rio Grande Valley and Lubbock and providing a forum for local legislators yeah. or local elected officials uh, to face to face some questions and, and not just from the moderators, but oftentimes, you know, from the public who come or something like that. So stuff like that makes me really proud to be. a. a and are those player. events sort of just. You know, like TribFest, we all we all have kind right, of right. Yeah, if you think about the kind of yeah. events that you see at TribFest, whether it's a panel of like three lawmakers, two Democrats, one Republican, two Republicans, one Democrat. Yeah, we, we have events like that in other parts of the state, and so um, that's something. I mean, I'm not involved in our events business, but that's something that I always, just as a reporter working for the Tribune, I was you know always have liked to see that that we're because I knew when I was hired by the Trib, you know, several years ago that we had a robust events 
uh, you know, section. Yeah. Um, and one of the things I saw just being a reporter for the trip over the years was how that events section branched out of just holding the typical, you know, interview with uh, an Austin based politician in downtown Austin, yeah. you know, in, in the trip auditorium or the, you know, local, another venue. So I think that's important. What always surprised of, me about yeah. trip fest was how successful it was in getting everybody to come. Yeah, I mean, all, absolutely. all the politicians wanted to be there. So, you know, Texas Tribune, in a time in when every media is somehow maligned as political or whatever, Dexter Tribune's been able to kind of stay above it. And when they have events, people want to be part of it, regardless of the party they're in, which yeah. speaks a lot to the Yeah, structure. we obviously live in a very polarized political environment. We're not going to get every uh, elected official to show up at our events. Um, you know, but I think that the ones who do never walk away, by and large, never walk away feeling like they weren't given a fair shot. Yeah. You know, I mean, even the most... You know the you know Republican lawmakers or elect or statewide officials who you think would you know be the most hostile toward the media, those ones who do chose to to choose to show up and participate. You know I don't I've never heard them walk away and feel like they didn't have a you know a fair opportunity yeah. or a fair interview. So well, it seems like there's a way to phrase questions that's fair when you can ask it the same way with a different inflection and yeah. all of a sudden it feels like an attack. And I've seen a bunch of Evan Smith interviews and he just has that really good. Yeah. way of asking questions, even when it is, hey, here's something that maybe right. makes you feel defensive, but I'm going to ask it my way and you're going to feel comfortable answering it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think he has a great interviewing style. He knows how to, to really push people, uh, you know, while uh, and maybe in some cases being, you know, I mean, he would, he would say sometimes I'm a dick in an interview, yeah. but like, you know, like it's, it's effective and people don't walk away from it. Some, you know, the interview subjects often yeah. don't get offended. They understand what's behind the questioning and the, and the persistence in the questioning. So so you are a political correspondent. What is that? Yeah, so it is covering all things politics in Texas. Um, correspondent, obviously, is I think in journalism, maybe a little dated bit sure. of a term. You think of like someone, um, you know, on the scene in all these different yeah. uh, cities. Although I do like to embrace that a little bit. I mean, <laughs> pre-COVID, I, I definitely took a lot of interest in, in traveling the state, tra traveling the country, even like for the presidential campaigns, um, and really getting outside of Austin um, and covering the stories where they're at. And, right. you know, as, you know, as COVID has gone on and become kind of the new normal and, uh, you know, I, I've gotten back out on the road and I've really enjoyed it. And so I do, while it may be a bit of a dated term correspondent, yeah. I do embrace the part of it that, you know, makes people think about someone out in all these different cities. And, and you kind of mentioned this before we got going, but sometimes you meet with sources and things like yeah. that. So, I mean, part of it is you just being present, able to report on things that other people aren't present for, but part of it actually has to do with like, creating and having your own sources of information that gives you insight and information that other people don't have access to. How do you go about sort of cultivating sources, you know, in, like you said, a highly charged political environment? Yeah, I think you just, you know, you get to know people through multiple election cycles and multiple campaigns and you try to keep uh, an awareness of, you know, oh, like, you know, that person worked on that race last cycle. Now I can see they're working for this this person this time around. Maybe I'll proactively reach out to them yeah. and say, hey, it's Patrick Svitek. You maybe remember me from, you know, this race last cycle or something like that. So I think it's just a matter of having a, a good knowledge of, you know, what people are doing in their in their professional lives in the, in the political and campaign realm and, you know, staying in touch with them and always, you know, making clear to them that uh, I'm, you know, always interested in, in sitting down, having a beer, having a coffee and, you know, talking, uh, off the record, not, you know, make it clear to people that like, I want to have a relationship that's not just based on you 
giving me some public on the record statement right, or something right. like that. And I'm sure you know, if there's any political journalist listening to this, th- this is not a you know a crazy innovation for me to be right, <laughs> right. saying this. But that, I think that's how political reporters uh, tend to operate and tend to be successful in building relationships. And I'm sure sort of how you present the information given and how you keep your word sort of sure either ends that relationship or builds it over the long term, right? Yeah, I think so. I think especially in this day and age when um, political journalism is so fast moving with Twitter, you know, like especially the, the trib, like deadlines at the trib are like, sometimes we get hard deadlines like 5 p.m. I'm going to turn in this story. But because we're an online news organization, deadlines are just constantly, you know, kind of rolling. Sure. And, it's, and the stories I work on often, you know, it's just like, when the story's ready, you know, let's post it, you know, uh, sometimes we'll hold something for the next morning. Cause you know, we, we obviously our analytics and we, we try to show when people are going to be, you know, looking at the website most often and get the most readers, but in general, things are very fast moving, especially in the kind of day-to-day work that, that, that I like to do. And so when it comes to source building and relationship building, I just try to be very transparent with people like, Hey, we're doing a story on this. It's, it's, you know, we need a response ASAP, you know, probably going to be published around this time. If you can't get me something, we can always, we're an online news organization. We can always update it to reflect your statement or something like that. And so, yeah, I think just in this fast moving environment, being transparent with sources about what you're doing um, and what you're looking for uh, is important. And is it like the movies to some extent or some of your sources, people that want nobody to know who they are and completely sort of in the in the dark or do they all kind of have to be public to some extent? No, I mean, I think there's plenty of, um, there's plenty of sources I have that, you know, uh, will never be quoted on the record in a story, but are incredibly helpful, um, for the insight that they provide off the record or on some other kind of, uh, attribution basis. And so, um, I wouldn't say it's like, you know, meeting them in the, the dark. <laughs> right. Bridge of spies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but there's there's plenty of people, as I'm sure any any political reporter would say in this day and age, who uh, are incredibly helpful and, and kind of have the, you know, may have kind of an invisible input in a story just for, you know, what they're able to provide you on a non-on-the-record basis. Do people in Austin know who they are? I mean, if, if I mean, it's kind of a sure. big high school yeah. up there, right? Like, <laughs> do people generally know who who are going to have kind of be loose lipped about things and who's, you know, I think in all, I mean, in any state capital, um, you know, I think that there's obviously kind of a, a gang of 400 kind yeah. of political insider class. Oh, yeah. And I think that among those people, there's probably, you know, half of them who can look at a, a negative story sometimes and kind of detect where the fingerprints are. I'm know? sure that's so, right. Yeah. And us reporters can do it too, right? Cause right. We've, we've been involved in those processes. So, um, you know, I think sometimes you can, you can see the fingerprints or even if someone's not quoted directly. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I am not in politics. I am very interested in it and follow it. And it's interesting to me. And there's sort of the, the policy making people. And then there's the political campaign type people. You cover both. Uh, anyone interest you more than the other? Yeah, I'm definitely more interested in, I mean, you could probably just see it in the, the work that I do. Definitely more interested in the politics campaign uh, side of it. Um, you know, but that doesn't say, that doesn't mean I'm not interested in, in policy and yeah. how it impacts Texans because that's a huge part of um, the TRIB's, coverage mission. I just happen to be the guy at the, the trip who's, a, a, you know, whose work skews more toward the, how yep. that plays out in the political arena. Well, and a lot of the policy, especially these last, this last legislative session was kind of all about politics. So you kind of get a lot of sure yeah. overlap in some. Oh yeah. Right? They're so enmeshed these days, whether it's last session or, you know, any, anything in the past decade. Yeah. Um, so one of the things I wanted to talk to you about and, and, you know, I do not get into real political hot button stuff on here 
in terms of opinions, but what are some of the big stories? So from just a general casual observer, it sounds like the Rio Grande Valley is one of those just like elephant in the room issues um, in terms of how Texas is going to trend over the next 20 years. And if, if the listeners don't know, you know, in the last presidential cycle, it didn't turn red, but it trended uh, mm-hmm. red in a lot of counties that nobody expected uh, that would happen. And now you have all sort of the like, what caused it, and what are the reasons? Have y'all have y'all seen any data to come out of the Rio Grande Valley to sort of discuss what was the cause of some of these big trends down there? You know, I know there's been a number of kind of autopsies done by the Texas Democratic Party, by by local civic and, and political groups about what happened uh, down there. Obviously, any of those autopsies. You know, first and foremost, they just chronicled the numerical shift. You know, Biden carried this district by X number after Hillary Clinton carried it by four times that right. number or something like that. So there's that kind of analysis. And then there's, you know, the anecdotal interviews, whether it's from, you know, focus groups or local Democrats who talk about what they were hearing and what they were seeing in, yeah. in their districts or in their races in uh, in 2020, um, where this shift really got supercharged. Um, you know, and you, and you talk to them and I know Philemon Vela, for example, congressman from Brownsville, um, you know, he's talked about how the perception at least, uh, that, you know, Democrats are hostile to the oil and gas industry, uh, hostile to law enforcement, uh, didn't play well in, in at least parts of South Texas because, um, you know, you have people in South Texas who, um, the oil and gas jobs are some of the best paying jobs yeah. uh, available to them. And you have people who have law enforcement in their family, whether it's, you know, uh, border patrol or other um, agents, law enforcement agencies in the area. Yeah. And I think you do have in South Texas, I mean, there is more of a pro law enforcement culture that cuts across uh, party lines. Um, I'm not trying to suggest that those are the exact causes of that yeah, shit, right. but I'm just saying, if you, if you look at the anecdotal, um, ana- you know, I'll call it analysis, but if you look at what anecdotally people are saying, whether it's elected officials like Congressman Vela or other folks in the community, they talk about how that perception damaged them. They talk about the you know the perception of uh, Democrats being more in favor of business shutdowns due to COVID being more damaging, um, and they talk about you know uh, Hispanic voters. Uh, I think particular, and I think this is borne out by by the data. And I'm not speaking out of line here, but particularly Hispanic men being more motivated by economic concerns, that being more of a a top issue versus uh, concerns about social issues or, uh, you know, migration issues um, that Democrats have tended to prioritize sometimes in the, in the messaging in these communities. Um, And so again, you know, there's, there's the, obviously the quantitative analysis, the quality, the qualitative or the anecdotal analysis. And I'm not trying to say that, you know, one is the determinative answer for everything, but that's what you hear when you, when you dive into those numbers. Um, and so, it, it, you know, it obviously provides a really good offensive opportunity for Republicans in, in 22, but they still have a lot to prove. Um, you know, and we can't forget, too, that, you know, the redistricting process, you know, they used the redistricting process to further this narrative. Yeah. You know, they drew districts, um, you know, in South Texas uh, to be more competitive for them. And so while I think there is a meaningful political shift happening um, in South Texas, you have to keep in mind that, you know, Republicans and, you know, if you were in power, why would you not do this? You know, that they are also using the powers of incumbency and the, the powers of, you know, controlling the redistricting process mm-hmm. to kind of further will this narrative into existence. Did they redistrict Ryan Gian's, uh district into a Republican district? Well, he was already, and, and to his, his credit, he already won re-election as a Democrat in a, in a district 
that went for Trump by a double digit margin. I, so what district was his his current district <laughs> was that was that Hidalgo County? Um, I don't know. I think his is based in Star County. Uh, okay, so yeah, it it's, is. It yeah, is. yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, he's Rio um, Grande City. Spreads, I think. Yeah, spreads farther north, all the way up to Wilson County, kind of closer to San Antonio. Does he pick up Zapata? Which did may, go red, he, he I may, think. He, yeah. That may be him okay. as well. Um, so in his case, I mean, he was kind of a uniquely strong incumbent in that he was able to win re-election as a Democrat in a Trump plus at least 10-point district. Okay. It was redistricted to be even much more pro-Trump, like, you know, double that. Yeah. And so I think redistricting is a factor there, but it's not the entire story. Anytime, you know, a Democratic state representative can win re-election, and he won re-election by a wide margin in a district that Donald Trump carried by double digits. Right. You got to give him a little credit for yeah. that, right? Um, he, but was I, always a con- uh, he was always a, you know. He was on the more conspiracy. We would call him a spectrum. conservative yeah. Democrat mm-hmm. um, by today's standards, at right. least. So, um, but, it, you know, if you look, for example, you know, in the, the state house districts, the, the Republicans used redistricting to basically create an entirely new district in Cameron County that is basically a, a battleground district. Mm-hmm. And they could very well win that and, and good for them if they win that. Yeah. But it will be the result of them controlling the redistricting sure. process and creating that opportunity for themselves to win. And Cameron's it. always been a little more conservative than kind of Hidalgo in some of those anyway. I think so. Yeah, yeah I think I, so. I, th- I know they've elected some. Republican state judges. I think that kind of ended about 10 years ago, but it was always kind of one of those places. Uh, what do you think are some of the biggest stories politically that are going to kind of bear out uh, between now and the election? Yeah, I mean, in terms of the the issue set statewide, I think is, is really interesting because, um, you know, the grid persists as an issue. Um, and that's an issue that, you know, Greg Abbott is, is fully aware of, um, his vulnerabilities on that issue. And he's made some very bold pronouncements uh, <laughs> that that issue is going to work out for him. My rich donors right. have assured me <laughs> sure, it yeah, won't there's, fail. There's obviously, yeah, yeah, influence and accountability angle on it too from that perspective. So, you know, it's, it's an interesting issue set because you have the grid, which is really not a statewide issue anywhere else in the country, right? right? I mean, it isn't. It isn't. There's no other country where you're going to see a a TV ad in November about the electrical grid, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) But you will. And I'm sure you'll see it in this one from from Beto O'Rourke, assuming he's the Democratic nominee. So that that strikes me as interesting because you have a unique issue set statewide. Uh, You have a governor who, number one issue, is the border. And right now, if you look at the Republican, uh, you know, primary electorate, um, the border is the number one issue for them. There is, uh, there's not enough any Republican incumbent can do in this environment to be seen as fighting hard enough on the border. So that's why you, and, you know, and that's where, and that's why you've seen so much from Abbott on this issue because I think he realizes he's operating in a, at least a primary environment where the border is number one and you have to be racing to your right on the border not to be you know vulnerable in a primary. Yeah, um, and that's just the you know we could talk about you know what the actual uh, immigration numbers are how much of a real problem there is but just because i don't want to how wanna... much a state elected official can actually exactly do, you yeah know? yeah yeah and you know and the, and the, and the you know uh problems with some of the policies he's developed we can have those discussions but just in terms of political reality yeah. right now i mean the border is number one for these voters and you don't want to be a republican in a primary seen as insufficiently tough on the border um so i think that's that's really interesting um, and I think COVID continues to be kind of a, you know, a lingering issue. And, yeah. um, you know, we are totally for Republicans. We're in this environment where, you know, COVID is, I don't want to say they, they believe COVID is over, but they believe, you know, COVID is here to stay. It's part of life. No new rules. 
Um, and you continue to have this tension with local governments that yeah. want to implement new rules. And so the border and the COVID you know, response, I think, are the two big issues for Abbott in this primary. Um, and that's why you've seen him, you know, try so hard in recent months uh, to, to, to keep catching where the conservative base is on those issues. You think he's going to try to do the Youngkin and DeSantis CRT uh, again? I mean, Texas yeah. already passed their CRT bill, uh, which arguably doesn't really address a problem. But yeah. it has been shown that it is effective at turning out voters. Do you think Abbott's probably going to head hard in He's that direction doing, too. Yeah, I mean, obviously, he championed what he would what he called a, a critical race theory ban. Yeah. Um, and in fact, the first bill that was passed in regular session, he thought was insufficient, and he put on the special session agenda a call for a more restrictive ban, and that passed too. And he's campaigning on that. And you hear him talking about that that we passed two bills, you know, banning quote critical race theory in Texas. Um, I think the issue of what he would call parental rights is going to continue to be big for him, and I think that obviously that rolls in a bunch of different issues. Um, you know, that's an umbrella issue for these curriculum issues like you just mentioned. It's an umbrella issue for not letting schools uh, close down for in-person learning, not letting schools require masks or require vaccines. Um, it really is an umbrella issue for all yeah. of that. And so he unveiled a, quote, parental bill of rights in his campaign recently. It wasn't super sexy, I would say. Yeah. Um, but it's clearly an issue for him. It was sexy from like a new policy standpoint. Right. And I'll say like there was nothing on there that, you know, was a headline worthy policy proposal, I would say. Um, but it's clearly front of mind for him. And I think he's definitely tapping into like what you said with um, the questions and concerns that were raised by Glenn Youngkin in that race. So, you know, when I followed politics and Rick Perry was our governor, he was always very transparent on sort of where he stood on issues. And it seems like Abbott is almost as far to the opposite of that in that he kind of doesn't let anybody know where he stands. And then like the CRT in a special session that wasn't telegraphed. That really wasn't part of the plan publicly. And then it just is there yeah. is it is sort of the rumor at least, or is, is the, the, the Austin hubbub that he sort of is kind of more politically uh, careful? Is it more of a, let's see what advisors say? I mean, why is his sort of public pronouncements of positions so different than than what we've seen in previous governorships? Is there some sort of basis for that or reasoning for that? Yeah, I think in general, he's been a, a very cautious governor when it comes to laying down positions, clear positions on these kind of hot button issues. I will say this year, it, it he kind of, and it may be because the train was leaving the station on some of these issues and yeah. he wanted to get on it before um, it was too late. He did put out some pretty pretty clear si signals on this issue, on these issues. I remember when the the state house uh, last spring or last March maybe passed their permitless carry bill, and at the time Abbott had not said anything, at least yeah. in the context of that session about permitless carry. And when they passed the bill, I remember thinking to myself, "Oh God, like here we go with Abbott. I'm sure it's going to be like a, a you know a, a three month you know kind of." Uh, an unclear situation of whether he supports it, whether he'll sign it. Maybe his office will put out something saying, you know, Abbott reviews every bill carefully and will, you know, weigh the pros and cons. Um, but two days, you know, a few days after the house passed that bill, he, he proactively went on a conservative radio host show and says, I'm ready to sign it. And so that was, to me, that was a little striking. Again, it may have been because he saw the writing on the wall, didn't want to be seen as the, the impediment to this uh, policy that appeared to have new momentum. Um, but to me, that was interesting because I feel like the history of Abbott with these hot button conservative issues is he's not the the first, second or third person statewide leader to voice right. support for it. Right? He's usually um, 
sometimes you don't even know if he's going to, you know, support it until he actually signs it. I remember that was the case with, uh, I believe the, oh man, it was like 2017, I think, the statewide texting and driving ban. We, I don't, if I recall correctly, and um, I'm sure Abbott staff from the time I mean, will, that died will correct me if I'm wrong. In a few sessions too. I mean that that passed yeah. and then died a few yeah. different times. Yeah, yeah. But I remember in that in the in that case of that issue, I'm almost certain we didn't know until he actually signed it. That makes sense. You know that that he supported it, and he got, of course he got questions about yeah. it, and his office deflected. So, yeah. So I, I would say in general he's a politically cautious governor, but this ye- past year in particular has been interesting to see him give clear signals on some um, on some of these hot button issues. And again, I'm not sure. I don't I don't know if I want to give him credit for being uh, you know particularly courageous in supporting these issues because. Um, he may have just been sensing at least the political environment within the Republican primary electorate was shifting quickly and he needed to be. Yeah, for so many sessions, he was able to blame Strauss for the failure of like the far conservative agenda and he couldn't do it anymore. And then also there's the rumor he's obviously running for president, dude. I mean, that has to, you have to see that as people get closer to like a national run, they start to change their positions or become sort of strident in what they think in a way they didn't previously, right? Yeah, yeah. I think that um, if he does run for president in, in 2024, he doesn't want to have any conservative vulnerabilities on his resume in, in, in 2022. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I think if, if you're looking at this in terms of a potential presidential context, I mean, you, you want to be running even, if not uh, just a little bit behind Ron DeSantis and all these issues, because yeah. DeSantis, I think, has uh, set the tempo for... Uh, kind of this hard right conservative policymaking in Florida. And, um, you know, I, I don't necessarily think that Abbott is, you know, always looking at DeSantis, but um, you, you want to be, you know, if Trump doesn't run, especially in 2024, uh, you, you want to be aligned with DeSantis. But these, these Bill issues. of Rights things he's doing are, are right after DeSantis did him as well. I mean, you, yeah. you see yeah, some almost identical, yeah, yeah. Uh, copying. And I read his uh, taxpayer Bill of Rights in it. It's just a lot of platitudes without any real policy proposals because, I mean, the state doesn't really have a ton of say in property taxes, do right, they? Right, right. I mean, it's no, a, it's a, they no, always bring it up, say, but there's course. not a lot yeah, that they can say. do. I mean, they're, they're working very hard to figure out how to influence yeah. property taxes given the lack of, uh, you know, uh, responsibility over them assigned to them yeah. by, by state law or the Constitution. Um, but the alternative is then you starve out, you know, things yeah. like police. You know, I mean, right. it's the way cities yeah, yeah. pay for right. these services that they say they're behind. So it's kind of this weird, yeah. you know, there's just not a lot that they can do, it seems like, but it's always something they talk about doing. Yeah, and I mean, and you have, I mean, there's an increasingly vocal segment of the Texas Republican Party that just supports and is campaigning on eliminating property taxes altogether. Um, you know, to the extent that you think Don Huffines is a primary challenge to, to Abbott, Regardless of the extent, you know, it's clear that one of Tuffines' top issues is is end property taxes. You, you drive anywhere in Texas, you probably have seen an end property taxes mm-hmm. billboard from from Huffines, who hasn't exactly uh, detailed how that would would look. Um, but it's a you know it's a quick and sexy political. It's slogan. got a lot of lack of details in a lot right. of positions. I mean, because <laughs> yeah. I follow him on Twitter, and it's just yeah, all yeah. these. You like, don't you don't see a lot of like yeah. footnotes to white papers Never. on those billboards. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm going to tell the federal government what to do about this. Right. Yeah, well, that's yeah. not how it works. Uh, do you, is the polling showing or data showing that, that get Abbott really has any vulnerabilities? No, I think he's well positioned in his primary. Um, but you know, I think he wants a resounding win in his primary. Yep. And I think that's, um, you know, and he wants the United Republican party going into the battle against Beto O'Rourke. Um, and so, yeah, and I think that that's partly why you've seen him move to the right. Um, I also think he's just a personally, he's personally sensitive 
more to criticism on his right than he may be to criticism yes. to, from the center or from the left. Um, you know, this is, you know, by all accounts, this is a governor who is, is has a pretty, you know, you may not think he's politically savvy. Even if you don't think he's politically savvy, he's a very politically informed governor. He, yeah. He's reading the tweets, yeah. <laughs> you know, like he, he knows what people are saying about him. And I think he's particularly, um, you know, sensitive to, to criticism on the right. And so um, it's an interesting, you know, his primary is an interesting race in that regard because so far the quantitative data, the, the polling, the fundraising points that he's safe, you know, points that he's safe in this primary, yeah. but the policy making, you know, it makes it look like he's, you know, down 20 points in this primary, right? <laughs> right? So it's, it's always, it's, it's a unique kind of primary to cover from that perspective because usually the policy making follows the, the quantity, you know, is, is aligned with yeah. the quantitative data for the Does campaign. the, uh, does he have to get majority to move on? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he has to get, so 50, he could end up in a runoff, which would be 50 kind of percent plus one vote. Yeah. So, um, I think yeah. a runoff will be a loss for him. Runoffs is, yeah, statewide runoffs in Texas are, uh, I don't think he would lose, but I'm saying that would just really take a, you yeah. know, a chink in his armor. Right. Of course. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and who knows in a runoff, you know, how farther to the right he'd have to be dragged and how damaging that could be in a general election against Beto O'Rourke. Um, so yeah. TBD. And how much money you'd have to spend. Yeah, yeah. I think for Abbott, money is no. I think there'll always be money for <laughs> money is no object for him. But sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Money will be spent. Yeah. You know, speaking of the storm, you see how much money those like oil and gas companies made, and then there's still just no fix to it. It really is one of those things that I, I'm real surprised that just the everyday voter hasn't just gotten behind this issue is such an important issue because you know in San Antonio our electricity rates are going up because of that storm. And yet nothing has been done to avoid that storm or from what if it was gasoline would be a criminal offense to raise prices in a disaster. So it's just kind of all of these things we've been taught are not okay, happened, still happen, and there hasn't been a fix. And I'm surprised it just has not kind of continued to be the biggest issue in the room. But yeah, it's interesting because I'm, I'm personally am desperate for a pollster to include the electric grid in when they ask about what's the most important issue to you or what do you think is the biggest issue facing the state right now? Yeah. Um, I haven't seen a lot of uh, public polling that does that because I think the, the salience of the issue is a little unknown. We know that when voters are asked about you know, did the, did lawmakers do enough to fix the situation? They say, hell no. You yeah. know, it's like, yeah. I think in one poll, it was like 20, 20, 60, 20 thinking they did enough. Yeah. 60 said, no, not enough. So we know where the public opinion is at. So then it begs the question, how salient of an issue is it? Is it up there competing with the border, the economy, um, you know, and other issues that voters tend to say is are, are top of mind for them in these races. I just haven't seen the public polls that, that include the grid as a category there. So well, I think San Antonio is also different because we have a, you know, a public utility that is our electricity. So whenever right. the rates going up, it's in the news and it gets voted on and you know about it. And I think the people that just buy from resellers out in the country, like where I grew up, yeah. they're probably just getting higher rates and it's in a letter and they never even know what's going on. But a place like San Antonio, I think people really, it's in the forefront of the news that your rates right. are going up because of that storm in which people were making billions of dollars at the same time. I mean, it's kind of funny how that will affect it because a lot of our, a lot of these cities that have public owned utilities are already right. Blue. Yeah. But you know, I, I I'm sensitive to it because I watch all the rate increase meetings right. and things like that. Yeah. And Beto O'Rourke is calling, you know, those rate increases being passed on to consumers, the, the quote Abbott tax, which yeah. is, you know, I think a savvy way to extend this issue beyond just, um, you know, the 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 
more immediate prospect of the grid failing, right? Because how do you yeah. talk about this issue after the cold weather months? And I think Beto Work has obviously zoomed in on talking, zeroed in on talking about those rate increases. And 700 people died. Yeah. You don't hear course. enough about that. That, that too. Yeah, yeah, yeah that too. Um, but I, yeah, th- from his perspective, it's like, how do you talk about this issue once you get through February and March? Um, you know, it, when, it, when it's not like there's an immediate. We're still paying for it. Right. Yeah. That's how you talk about it. it. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly how you talk about it. And, you know, we'll see how that plays out. But, you know, one thing that struck me, and, and I, I, I'm selling myself out because I watched tons of committee hearings and floor yeah. debates this last session. And it's just such a dense issue that you got the feeling that, like, a lot of people didn't want to deal with it. Like a lot of the electeds kind of just, it was, it's so dense. It's so hard to wrap your mind around. And the one thing was for sure is they weren't going to stop the profiteering off of it. And that was sort of what was true. And not only that, they didn't want to force winterizing because it's expensive. I mean, all these things that they should have forced 10 years ago, nobody seemed to have the political courage to take it on. So yeah. Can got kicked down the road. And that, yeah, it's complicated to explain. It's complicated to explain just to begin with. It's complicated to explain what, because there it wasn't zero done on it. It's complicated yeah. to explain what there was done on it. And I think that's why you've seen Abbott just gravitate toward just, whether you think this is politically smart or not, just being like, we're going to be good. You know, yeah. because like, I'm not going to even, like, you're, like, this is so complicated. There were I lots should, of bills passed. Yeah. But it was <laughs> lots of, best I could tell, and I have a friend who was testifying a lot of it, a lot of small fixes along the way. There right. wasn't a massive piece of legislation that addressed it. Yeah, and I think not enough forcing these actors to do what's, you know, forcing these actors to do what's right without, uh, opt, you know, potential to opt out. Yeah. And so, again, from a political messaging perspective, I think that's why Abbott has just gravitated toward just making these bold declaratory statements because um, explaining it to the average voter is, is difficult. So, you know, over the last 20 years, it has seemed as though Texas has sort of had this um, <laughs> almost like a monarchical system of like Abbott was a Supreme court judge. Then he was attorney general. Then it was his turn to run for governor. And, you know, you kind of had these people that just sort of worked through the system. And then you had Dan Patrick, who was a rebel who came in and nobody thought he could win. And now he's maybe the most powerful guy in the state of Texas. You've got all these people challenging the AG. You've got all these people challenging the governor. Do you think a lot of this is a result of sort of how successful Trump was in his positions that people in Texas to the right of some of our electeds think that they have a, they have a chance they didn't have before. Um, I think it's, it's a, it's, this is the cop out of an answer. <laughs> I think it varies race by race. Yeah. I mean, obviously with Paxton, he's had mounting vulnerabilities yeah. over the years. Um, and I think for these people who are challenging him, the uh, claims by his former top deputies who were respe- well-respected in conservative legal circles, um, the claims of, you know, cor- corruption by those former top deputies was, um, you know, uh, the um, straw that broke the camel's back for them. So I think that's... The indictment wasn't enough. Exactly, yeah, yeah. The, the FBI sec- investigation. The yeah, yeah. Well, the FBI investigation is related to these claims, but the, yeah, clearly they weren't troubled yeah. enough by the securities fraud indictment uh, in uh, 2015. And it's funny, I was just thinking about this last month because I was at the, you know, Republican Party of Texas... Um, headquarters with an hour to go into the filing deadline. I always try to hang out there to see if anyone shows up at the last sure. minute. And it, it reminded me that four years previously in 
on that, you know, evening in December 2017, I did the same exact thing because I was waiting to see would anybody file to challenge Ken Paxton in the 2018 yeah. Republican primary, and nobody did. That's and, what I'm saying. Yeah. Like, even when people were vulnerable, they, they yeah. didn't challenge each other, and yeah. you see a lot more of right. inter-party so fights Clearly, now. folks weren't troubled, and at least Republicans weren't troubled enough by the indictment to field a serious challenger against him. Now this FBI investigation and the claims that have, are, under, are undergirding it um, – are enough for them. So that's a unique race. You know, I think Abbott, um, Abbott's race is just driven by folks seeing, uh, you know, uh, you know, an incre- a pendulum swinging after 2020 increasingly to the right in Texas. Um, I mean, we are definitely getting back to, and this has been aided of course by redistricting, but I think just in terms of the trend in Texas right now, we're definitely getting back to a, a point in Texas politics where, you need to be much more worried about losing in a primary than a general election yeah. where the threat is, is it's back in the primary. And so I think Abbott recognizes that. I think that explains some of the challenges that he's facing because the, 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 the environment, and again, redistricting, not in Abbott's race, but yeah. in these legislative races, obviously the district of Texas is still the same. Um, but redistricting accelerates that a little bit too. Um, the Paxton stuff has been interesting for me being a lawyer uh, because it has just kept piling up in terms of sort of how much water's under the bridge. And then we have an agricultural commissioner who's got some allegations of some sort of untoward activity as well. Uh, are voters really paying attention down ballot on those kind of races in your estimation? Or is a lot of this sort of pulling the lever and pulling the incumbent lever for, you know, governor maybe aside, but are you asking how much voters care about those ethical issues in these like races? educating yeah. themselves on those kind of races. Right. Right. I mean, do you think do you think the voters do you think the majority of voters are really paying attention to those, or are they paying attention to who our incumbent is? You know, I I don't think the ethical issues are the number one issue for some of these Republican primary voters. I think if you're George P. Bush, if you're James White running against Sid Miller, you got to be able to. Um, connect those ethical issues to some broader concern about their ability to represent the conservative cause. And so that's why you see your George P. Bush or any Paxton challenger is saying we can't have, we can't be fighting the Biden administration with an indicted AG, you know, or twice indicted if that yeah. happens, you know? Um, and so, and that's why, you know, you see James White and even Paxton challengers talking about other issues that appeal to conservative voters. I mean, you know, anybody following politics who is involved in campaigns would not be surprised about this, but what was George P. Bush's first TV ad about? It wasn't about Ken Paxson being indicted. It wasn't about any, it wasn't even, didn't mention Ken Paxson. It was about George P. Bush being tough on the border. Um, and that just shows the salience of that. Oh, was that his first ad, the yeah, one with first, him on the four-wheeler? Yeah, first TV ad. Yeah, okay. yeah. Of course, you know, even if you're well-known, you usually don't go negative in your first TV right. ad. But I think it just shows that, you know, these challengers to these incumbents have ethical issues know that they still have to build credibility with primary voters on these other issues that yeah. are important to them. And you can't hang an entire campaign on um, these ethical issues because, you know, clearly they're primary voters. Uh, you know, they reelected Paxson in 2018. They reelected Sid Miller in 2018, and he had a well-funded primary challenger who was, you know, also claiming that Sid Miller was ethically compromised. And so these these challengers know that you just can't run a single-issue campaign because, you know, primary voters want more than that. Yeah, Sid Miller had some allegations of lobbying or, like, yeah, I mean, he's, trips you know, he shouldn't have almost, gone on or something. Yeah, I can't remember now. It's almost baked in at this point, yeah. I think, with Republican primary voters, especially with Sid Miller, that this is this is who we have. <laughs> I mean, if, I, if I'm a if I'm a Democratic interest group, I'm just putting up random interviews with Sid Miller on TV. I mean, like this is I mean, he just says things you should not say 
and yeah. doesn't care. <laughs> and voters keep reelecting him. Uh, let's talk about San Antonio. So you, you said you were waiting for uh, filings at the Republican headquarters. A lot of people here thought Nico LaHood, our former district attorney, right. was yeah. going to uh, announce that he was going to – well, he did announce. He did, yeah. yeah. Uh, and Enough thought he was going to file to run in Lyle Larson's seat. He did not. Um, you really don't have many other competitive races in San Antonio. Uh, one thing that I'm just curious about – as far as cities go in the legislative process, you have some cities that probably work together and some cities that don't. Is San Antonio's elected, I mean, do they usually coalesce around San Antonio issues and work together pretty well? Yeah, I'd say so. I'd yeah. say it's, you know, at least legislatively, it's it's usually been, um, you know, a relatively united delegation, maybe compared to other major city delegations. Yeah. Um, you know, you do have, uh, you do have tensions sometimes. I mean, I remember... Uh, Trey Martinez Fisher challenging Diana Revelo. Yeah. Um, was that two, three, two, three years ago? Uh, and he successfully getting his old seat back. Um, and a number of his San Antonio colleagues endorsed him in that race at mm-hmm. the time. So you do have, I think, situations like that. But I think for the most part, it is a, a United delegate, at least State House delegation. Yeah, yeah, for the most part, you don't see kind of the far right fringe or the far left fringe from our sort of delegation. You know, they're not at the back mic, sure. you know, yeah. putting people down or trying to be purists about things. Um, as sort of cities tend to trend, I mean, San Antonio was one of the last cities, I guess Fort Worth really, but San Antonio still had sort of, we were kind of purple for a little while. Um, is the expectation that cities are going to just keep trending blue and the rural is going to just keep trending red? I mean, is that sort of the expectation in Texas? Um, I don't think necessarily. I think, you know, the Bear County uh, judge race is going to be an interesting barometer of that oh, yeah. cycle. Um, clearly, Trish DeBerry, the, the county commissioner who got in at the last minute, sees some opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, and gave up a good exactly. gig for it. Only two years into yeah. it, too. I don't, I, I don't follow municipal politics yeah. that, that closely, but that's you know my understanding. So clearly, she, 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 she sees an opportunity countywide. Um, you know, I mean, if this if this national environment continues, or Biden is is so unpopular, especially in Texas, um, you know, there's no reason that Republicans shouldn't try in Bear County. You yeah. know, shouldn't make a real effort here. In fact, Greg Abbott was in San Antonio over the weekend, and you know, this may have just been rally talk, but uh, you know, he said, "I believe Republicans are going to win quote at the local level in Bear County this election cycle, not just at and also in the state at the yeah. statewide level." I think he he carried Bear County in his first his first uh, race in 2014. It's probably right. Um, so because he's in non presidential years, right? Yeah. yeah uh, yes. So correct. you'd see swings in non presidential yeah, years exactly. here, especially to the right. So yeah. yeah, I mean, I've always you know, I mean, I've uh, you know, at least since I've been in Texas since 2014, have considered you know Bear County, uh, de- you know, a, a Democratic leaning county, but one that's not um, immune to national swings. Yeah. You know, well, you see a bunch of Republicans. Uh, signing up to run in races that they didn't last cycle as well. And I, I mean, even Trish DeBerry's race, I think uh, there was rumors other people were going to get into that. People thought Brockhouse was going to get into right, it and right. all those kind of things. And uh, none of that, you know, none of that came to be. Um, from a from a sort of trend standpoint, do you think the pendulum for Texas ever comes back left? Yeah, there's always uh, there's always potential for uh, Republican leaders to overstep. I mean, this this <laughs> even though the pendulum you know just started swinging back in the right direction post 2020 in Texas. I mean, 22 is certainly going to be a, a test of whether um, you know the Republicans you know have overreached in in passing permitless carry, the near total abortion ban, 
um, some of these voting restrictions. Um, I, you know, I think this is still going to be a, a relatively uh, good election cycle for them, but I think that there is, you know, there's, there's always the risk that they continue pushing on these issues, continue trying to uh, appease a base, parts of a base that is insatiable on some of these issues. I mentioned the border, for example, yeah. um, you know, and how right now in a Republican primary, you, you just cannot do enough on the border. Do you think the voters realize that the wall doesn't stop them from becoming part of the system? Right. I mean, I think, <laughs> I think, I think Republican base voters think the wall is literally a physical barrier that keeps somebody from entering and becoming part of, right, right. You know, customs or INS or however it works. But yeah, you know, I, I've had that discussion with people and say, you realize when they get to the wall, then they just get picked up and they still get processed through the immigration right, system. Right. Yeah. And yeah. they, that's, that's not a thought process that people have. Which is just kind of a strange thing that yeah you know, I, I don't know if in the political realm where anyone's really thinking it through that yeah <laughs> but quite frankly so, you know, so, so, to agree with your point yeah yeah yeah, yeah. absolutely um, so yeah no I do think there's uh, you know the pendulum could could swing could swing back um, if Republicans are seen as as overreaching um, you know so I, I think that's TBD but I think that there's no doubt though in the national and statewide environment right now is is pretty much in, in favor of of Republicans and I think. Democrats are going to be playing a lot of defense outside of these get elected issues. Uh, what do you think are some of the most important issues for the state of Texas going forward? I mean, you know, these are the ones people get elected, you know, elected sure. on, but I yeah, think yeah. the grid really is a real issue for yeah. people. And, you know, there's discussions that some businesses have chosen not to come here because of grid reliability issues. What are some of the real issues that you think people I mean, should maybe spend more time educating themselves on? I mean, I think healthcare is always a top issue in Texas. And I think obviously one of the highest uninsured rates uh, in the country that is always, you know, cause for concern and alarm. I think it sometimes, uh, you know, is under appreciated, including by reporters like myself, just because <laughs> there's, there's such uh, inaction on it by the governing majority. Yeah. And so there's not much to write about, about right. it, but it's still a, it's still an important issue just uh, morally. And Our so, Lyle Larson was the only Republican to vote for expanding. Right. Medicaid. Right. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So that, that's one that I think is, um, you know, that is, uh, you know, just an important issue regardless yeah. uh, of the politics. Um, you know, I think, you know, voting in Texas is an, is an important issue. Um, you know, there, there's no doubt that this, in, in the name of election security, this latest uh, legislation, you know, created new processes, new processes that, that do create new hurdles to voting. I mean, Republicans believe those new hurdles are justified because yeah. of their interest in what they would say is restoring confidence in the elections. Um, but anytime new hurdles are, you know, created for voting, I think that's an important issue um, for anyone to weigh um, the cost and benefit of those new hurdles. So yeah, I'd say, you know, have you done any reporting on our foster system? I have, I've not been the Trib's main reporter on that. So I, I mean, even ProPublica has done some stuff yeah. with y'all on that. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, in San Antonio, just recently, a woman got arrested, uh, a two-year-old and a three-year-old, I think two, four, two, three, uh, one of them was hogtied. One was tied to a crib. Uh, nobody was there. Turns out that there were kids that had been taken by CPS and given to this person. I mean, so we, and, and, and I think the federal judge in Corpus Christi also has said that that's unconstitutional. It's a major issue in our state that also seems like every session the can gets kicked down the road, that there's a few fixes, and then you just continue having these horror stories about what's going on and yeah, nobody pays attention to it. Right. Yeah. I mean, there are issues like that that have been, uh, you know, persistent for years in Texas that continue to fly, fly under the radar. I think. What so. about you personally? Any specific policy issues that you really geek out about? 
Um, I mean, f- in my reporting, I like campaign finance. I okay. don't know if that's that, that that can be a policy issue. I mean, the the, the rules that are made in terms uh, by the Texas Ethics, Ethics Commission about how campaigns should be run, uh, how things should be disclosed in Texas, uh, I think are important. I, yeah. I know that's kind of an insider discussion, but we we do live in a state where there are no campaign you know campaign contribution limits, and so I think in a state like ours, um, following those policies and those rules, um, you know. Is, is 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 a worthwhile endeavor as a reporter yeah. and so that personally you know interests me um you know i've you know i can't necessarily speak to how this plays out in every city in texas but as i mentioned before we started recording you know i i when i was in college i covered a lot of gun violence i'm always interested in crime issues yeah. um and how those trends are, are playing out uh, in different cities i can't say at the tribune that I've, I've covered that that closely as a policy matter but if you ask me my personal interests um that's up there as well uh, we're fixing to end. Uh, the last thing I want to ask you is anything you're looking forward to learning in San Antonio or doing in San Antonio or getting to know? I'm just interested in getting to know the, the local political scene more. Yeah. Um, you know, I've always been aware of like the state house, uh, politics and the, um, congressional politics that touch San Antonio. Um, and I've, you know, I've covered a few of them, written about a few of the mayoral races here. Um, talk about the pendulum swinging over yeah. the past <laughs> decade in, in San Antonio. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm interested in getting to know more about local politics, um, both as a, you know, as a resident and then just as a political observer. Yeah, I don't think people realize how diverse our mayor's office has been over the last four cycles. Right, right. I mean, our four mayors. I mean, we, yeah, it is not what people would expect if they came down here and really paid attention to our politics. Yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely. The one thing that's interesting to me is to see how much that DSA influence from like Austin City Council is going to sort of bleed over to San Antonio because you have Greg Gazar yeah. coming down here now and doing campaign rallies with people that did get elected. So it's, it's, it's an interesting. Trend. Yeah. I was, I was going to mention earlier that the election of Jalen McKee Rodriguez and I think it's Terry Castillo mm-hmm. um, was of particular interest to me just yeah. in terms of municipal politics. And so um, I want to pay more close attention to that kind of stuff. Well, uh, Welcome to San Antonio. Thank, Thank you, you for, for doing this. Me. Yeah. I hope I, I can have you on here some more after some things happen politically. Uh, but that's going to do it, and I appreciate your time, and, and welcome. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Alamo Hour. You are all what make this city so great. We hope you join us next week. In the meantime, subscribe to our podcast. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com slash alamohour or our website, alamohour.com. Until next time, viva San Antonio!